Well, dear friends, our text this morning as we hear from the living God in his word is Hebrews chapter 13, verses 1 to 6. It would be accurate to call chapter 13 of Hebrews the epilogue to the written sermon that we have studied over many months at Christ the King. But that doesn't mean that it's an afterthought. Chapter 13 is obviously of a different genre than the theological discourse of the sermon we read in chapters 1 to 12. And yet, in some ways, chapter 13 is the point of Hebrews. We've seen throughout our series that the pastor's primary concern for his hearers is their endurance in the life of faith. Following the main central section of Hebrews that ran from chapter 4, verse 14, to chapter 10, verse 18, the pastor was explicitly focused on the need for such endurance. In chapter 10, verse 32, he drew their attention to the former days, to a time after their conversion when their conduct was clearly in keeping with their profession, when they were living by faith. But recall the former days, the pastor wrote, beginning in chapter 10, verse 32, when, after you were enlightened, that is, after their conversion, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Such had been their faithfulness. Now the pastor would call them to carry on in the same way. Therefore, he continued in verse 35 of chapter 10, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. Having reminded and instructed his hearers at great length in his sermon concerning the spiritual resources available to them as people of the new covenant who have Jesus as their great high priest, the pastor then urges them to a life of faith. He quoted from Habakkuk, chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, in Hebrews 10, verses 37 and 38. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. All along, this has been the pastor's chief purpose, the reason for his sermon, to urge his hearers to live by faith. At times, there were strong warnings. In the face of persecution, it seems this community of first century believers was in some danger of regressing even to the point of apostasy. And yet the pastor never gave up on them after what is arguably the strongest warning in all of Hebrews in chapter 6, verses 4 to 8, 
The pastor said, beginning in verse 9 of Hebrews 6, Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Because in the end, it all comes down to faith. And faith comes down to how we live our lives. If you were with us four weeks ago when we concluded the sermon proper in chapter 12 of Hebrews, you may recall that this was the precise point on which the pastor landed in the end. Therefore, he concluded in verse 28 of chapter 12, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. As we said four weeks ago, the pastor's not just talking there about what we do for an hour and a half on Sunday mornings. To offer God acceptable worship is to offer him our whole lives. Paul says in Romans 12 verse 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Chapter 13 may be the epilogue to the pastor's sermon, but it is not an afterthought. In fact, it's what the pastor's been driving towards all along, because as I read it, Chapter 13 is nothing less than the pastor's description of the concrete form their acceptable worship was to assume. In other words, what we have in chapter 13 is the life of faith fleshed out in everyday terms. We're going to take four weeks on this chapter as we conclude Hebrews. This week, we look at verses 1 to 6. In the next two weeks, we'll consider verses 7 to 19 before we then conclude on the last Sunday in June with verses 20 to the end, the final benediction. This morning, then, we're in verses 1 to 6. And the focus of the pastor's directives in these verses is given in verse 1. Let brotherly love Continue, he writes. We might title verses 1 to 6, Practical Expressions of Love in the Church, because I think that following that key exhortation of verse 1, the rest of the admonitions in these verses unpack the nature of love. In verses 2 and 3, the pastor describes behavior that directly expresses this brotherly love. Then in verses 4 and 5, the pastor forbids conduct that violates brotherly love. 
before then concluding in verse 6 with a quote from Psalm 118 that makes clear that obedience in all these matters is an expression of life lived in dependence on God. In other words, it's all the life of faith. We begin then in verse 1, where we find the key to all that follows in our text. Let brotherly love continue. There are two aspects of that exhortation that I think merit some comment. First, notice that the pastor exhorts them to brotherly love. In the Greek, brotherly love is just one word, Philadelphia. Now, the critical thing to know about that word is that outside of Christian literature, it's used almost exclusively for the natural bond that joins actual brothers and sisters and the mutual support that should characterize their relationships. The astonishing thing, therefore, the beautiful thing, is that in the New Testament, it's not the biological family that's in view when this term is used. It's the church. Because in the New Testament, it's other believers who are our brothers and sisters. In Romans chapter 12, verse 10, Paul writes, love one another with brotherly affection. It's Philadelphia that he uses there. In 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 9 and 10, we read, now concerning brotherly love, Philadelphia, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers and sisters throughout Macedonia. But we urge you to do this more and more. The Apostle Peter writes in 1 Peter 1 verses 22 and 23, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love, Philadelphia, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. Through Jesus Christ, all believers are made brothers and sisters of one another in a way that is even more significant than our own blood relations. Jesus himself taught that. When told in Mark chapter 3 that his physical mother and brothers were seeking him, Jesus responded in Mark 3 verses 33 to 35, Who are my mother and my brothers? For whoever does the will of God, he or she is my brother and sister and mother. This way of thinking has been part of Hebrews as well. At various points, the pastor refers to his hearers as brothers and sisters. For as the pastor explained, beginning in Hebrews chapter 2 verse 11, he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he, meaning Jesus, is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters, saying saying to the Father in the words of Psalm 22, 
I will tell of your name to my brothers and sisters. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. Because of what Jesus Christ has done for us, we are accepted as the sons and daughters of God, dear friends. Joint members of the household of God and as sons and daughters, brothers and sisters and fellow heirs of the world to come through the Son. And so it is the primary ethic of the Christian church that we are to love one another with an ongoing, never-ending, brotherly love. It is a matter of endurance. Let brotherly love continue, the pastor stresses. This is not sentimentality. Here the pastor urges his hearers to live, to live in accordance with their relationship to God as their father, now brought to fulfillment by Christ, their brother. They were to will to practice brotherly love with one another as an ongoing habit. This too is the teaching of Jesus. A new commandment I give to you, Jesus said in the upper room in John chapter 13, verse 34, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. It's John who later put the matter in very direct terms in 1 John 4, verse 11. Beloved, a term which should naturally describe those who are brothers and sisters. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. What then does such love look like? Well, rather than speaking to a particular emotion, the emphasis in the New Testament focuses on the call to meet one another's needs. The concept of believers as united in a close spiritual family lays the foundation for practical exhortations to meet the needs of those in the family. Believers must live out love practically as an ever-present dynamic in the church. And so, in verses 2 and 3 of our text, we find two ways in which the pastor urges his hearers to express this brotherly love. First, he says in verse 2, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Now, the connection here with verse 1 is explicit, because where the first word in verse 1 is Philadelphia, meaning brotherly love, the first word in verse 2 is philoxenia, literally meaning love of hospitality. The portion of that word, the Greek xenia, means hospitality and also is related to the Greek word for stranger, since usually it is to strangers that one offers hospitality. To the hearers of Hebrews, then, these two exhortations would have sounded something like, Love of brother, let it continue, 
love of hospitality do not forget. In other words, brotherly love is to extend to the whole people of God. It isn't just limited to those with whom we are familiar. What the pastor urges here is a generous sharing of what one has. And without denying that such hospitality will rightly at times be extended to strangers in general, here the point seems to be especially that the pastor urges the extension of hospitality to other believers, fellow Christians coming from elsewhere, previously unknown to them. In the early days of the church, hospitality became an essential way in which the mission of the church was supported. There were generally no dedicated buildings for their meetings, and so much of the work was carried out by itinerants. Inns where they existed were often miserable or disreputable places, and in a context in which Christians sometimes suffered ostracism by society and family, hospitality to fellow brothers and sisters was essential. Its importance in the early Christian movement is reflected by how frequently it appears in the New Testament. In Romans chapter 12, verse 13, Paul says, Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. And there he uses the same word as we have in our text, philoxenia. Peter, in 1 Peter 4, verse 9, says, Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. And Peter there uses philoxenos, which is essentially the same word as in our text. According to 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2, no one is to think of being a Christian leader who doesn't practice hospitality. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable. Hospitality is the opening of one's home and one's life to others. And Christians are urged to do it, especially with other believers, even when those other believers are strangers. This is explicitly the thing for which Gaius is commended in 3 John verse 5, where in 3 John verse 5, John writes, Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. We ought to support people like these that we may be fellow workers for the truth. To the pastor writing Hebrews, such hospitality was so important that he in fact tantalized his people with a remarkable possibility. For thereby some have entertained angels unawares, he says. The allusion there is almost undoubtedly to the hospitality so willingly shown by Abraham in Genesis 18 to three strangers who, unbeknownst to him, were angels one of whom no less than the Lord himself. But other encounters from the biblical text may come to mind as well. Perhaps Gideon's encounter with the angel 
under the oak at Ophrah in Judges 6, or Manoah's hospitality to the angel unaware who then announced that he and his wife would give birth to Samson in Judges 13. The point isn't to somehow motivate us to show hospitality in the hope of winning the angelic lottery or some such thing. After all, if you ever do entertain angels, the pastor says you won't know it. Rather, the point is to stress that God so values Christian hospitality that at times he furthers his very purposes through it, even using his own messengers, some of whom the pastor reminded us long ago in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14, are sent out for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. That is, you and me. Well, the second example of brotherly love in this text is found in verse 3. Not only were they to practice hospitality to strangers, they were to remember those who are in prison, the pastor says, as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. If the first example is that of hospitality, here the principle is of sympathy for the trials experienced by others. Once again, it seems likely the reference here is primarily to fellow Christians jailed and mistreated for their faith. And once again, it's important to recognize that the pastor's admonition to remember those in prison would have been intensely practical in the first century context. The pastor means that they should minister to the needs of those who suffer for Christ. One commentator explains it this way, quote, While his hearers may not yet have been imprisoned, as God's faithful they are subject to such treatment, and thus they should minister to their brothers and sisters with the full sympathy of those who share their experience. The incarcerated endured great suffering because prisons, this is prisons in the first century, first century uh, Roman Empire, prisons were cramped, damp, dark, and filthy. Furthermore, those who kept them were often harsh and desirous of bribes. Prisoners were given no clothes and little, if any, food. Thus, to remember such prisoners was to supply their physical needs and provide them with moral support, even at the risk of exposing oneself to possible confinement. The pastor then goes on to reinforce that exhortation with another more comprehensive one. His hearers were also to remember those who are mistreated, or you could translate it tortured, since you also are in the body. Now, it's tempting to try to understand the final part of that verse, in the body, to mean in the body of Christ, but the Greek usage here simply doesn't allow it. Rather, the point seems to be that the pastor reminds his hearers, who are in fact part of the same body, that they are equally vulnerable to captivity and mistreatment as men and women who are also in a body. 
They must not imagine themselves to be somehow immune to such suffering, nor are they to avoid the suffering of others so as to better fit in with society. Rather, they are to sympathize with those who so suffer and comfort them. By going to and being with such victims, despite the stigma, the hearers themselves bear the reproach of Christ and encourage their suffering siblings. And so the bottom line is clear. Brotherly love extends compassion to all the suffering within the household of God. The hearers of Hebrews were to make this practical concern for the needs of the suffering a regular part of their lives. In doing so, Jesus would be both their example and the ultimate recipient of their acts of love. Truly, I say to you, Jesus said in Matthew 25, verse 40, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you did it to me. Well, from these exhortations to express brotherly love in verses 2 and 3, we turn in verses 4 and 5 to two exhortations warning against sexual infidelity and greed. And here the logic seems to be that these are types of conduct that violate and destroy brotherly love. Since in sins of sex and greed, other people are not the object of love, but rather become the means by which one attains his or her own desires. The first area of forbidden conduct has to do with sexual infidelity. Let marriage be held in honor among all, the pastor writes in verse 4, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. The point here is that the pastor asserts that all forms of sexual immorality, whether committed by those who are married or not, are destructive to both the individuals involved and the community. We begin in the first part of verse 4, where the point is that married or not, all are to hold the institution of marriage in honor. Only don't misunderstand, the pastor's argument here is not that marriage is a particularly honored office. The unmarried are equally honored in Scripture. Paul is clear on this in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. He writes, To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single, as I am, he says in 2 Corinthians 7 verse 8. And in verse 17 of that chapter, Paul concludes by saying, Let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him or her, and to which God has called him. There is no elevation of the marriage office over and above singleness here or elsewhere in Scripture. But what the pastor does insist on is that the biblical conceptions of sex and marriage must be honored by all. In other words, whether you're married or not, the biblical view 
is that sexual relations are to be enjoyed only within the context of the marriage bond between a man and a woman, as established by God in the opening chapters of Genesis. This fact must be honored by, or more literally you could translate it, must be held preciously by all, the pastor says. Notice here how sexual misconduct is not simply a matter of private concern, but rather has implications for the common life of the people of God. It's easy for us to miss this. The biblical conceptions of sex and marriage are owed firstly and always primarily to the covenant with God. That is, the covenant that was the ordering center of Israel's life in the Old Testament and then the church's history in the New. Whether speaking of Israel in the Old Testament or the body of Christ in the New Testament, the marriage relationship is meant to be a picture of how God relates to his people. Because Christ and his church are one man and one woman, so is Christian marriage. Because God designed human marriage and its sexual intimacy to illustrate his exclusive covenant love for his people, he will jealously defend its precious purity. So, when the pastor continues in verse 4 by saying, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, well, the implications are for everyone, married or not. Because married or not, the most fundamental way we honor marriage is by not violating the marriage bed through sexual relationships outside of marriage. We know that's what the pastor means here because of what he says in the final part of verse 4. The pastor says God will judge both the sexually immoral, that is, all who have sexual relations outside of the marriage bond, and the adulteress, that is specifically referring to the unfaithfulness of those who are married. Everyone is potentially included in those two designations that if they were to be sexually immoral or adulterous in an unrepentant fashion, they would be judged. Because the point is, such activity is defiling. It is the opposite of holiness. Simply put, sexual immorality is a breach of the new covenant, of our lives of faithfulness understood as the worship of God, as we've said earlier. No wonder it incurs the judgment of the God who is a burning fire, as chapter 12, verse 29 reminded us. Now this was then, and it is today, radical stuff. The pagan world of the first century was every bit as sexually promiscuous as the Western world of the 21st century is. But the scriptures are nonetheless clear on this point. In 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 and 10, Paul asks, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor those who practice homosexuality, 
will inherit the kingdom of God. He lists other things in addition to those. In 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 3 to 7, we read, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, the holiness language, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, that no one transgress and wrong his brother. Notice how the application is to the community. In this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. That's 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 3 to 7. Well, from this warning of God's judgment in verse 4 of our text, we continue into another area of conduct to be avoided in verse 5, which is the love of money. Keep your life free from love of money, the pastor says, and be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. It's interesting to note that greed and sexual, sexual immorality are often mentioned in conjunction with one another in the scriptures, perhaps because those who pursue the things of this life are often characterized by both of them. Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 5 and 6, For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. The reason is elementary. Our Lord himself made it clear in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, No one can serve two masters, Jesus said, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10 says, The love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Well, within the context of Hebrews chapter 13, the point seems to be that greed or love of money is the opposite of brotherly love and hospitality. For greed prevents one from participating in the love of others by meeting their needs. Thus, greed, along with sexual immorality, is sure to destroy the brotherly love of the community. The pastor addresses the cause of such greed in verse 5, its discontentment with present circumstances. I'm reminded of Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 10, which says, The one who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor the one who loves wealth with his income. The covetous will never be content. But how can we find such contentment that steers us away from covetousness and greed? Well, it is by focusing on the final quotation the pastor gives in verse 5, likely taken from Joshua chapter 1, verse 5, where the Lord said to Joshua, 
I will never leave you nor forsake you. It is the assured faithfulness of God that provides every reason for us to avoid the love of money and pursue a life of contentment. For just as God spoke these words of assurance to Joshua, encouraging him to enter and take the promised land, so he does to us. As we've seen all through Hebrews, we're to persevere until we enter the promised heavenly home and city. The God who would not abandon Joshua on the eve of his entrance will not abandon us. Ours must be the attitude expressed in 1 Timothy 6, verses 6 to 8. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. It all comes down to faith, does it not? Trusting the promises of God for the future, and trusting the power of God in the present. When we do, ours will be the same resolve expressed in verse 6, where the pastor quotes from Psalm 118, verse 6. So we can confidently say, the pastor writes, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is indeed our helper in all of this. As Hebrews has reminded us, God, through his Son, Jesus Christ, has furnished all the help we need to reach the end of our pilgrimage and enjoy life in his presence forever. I like how one author explains the implications of verse 6 of our passage, so I'll close with his words. With this promise, one author says, referring to verse 6. No matter how limited our earthly resources may be, we can say with the psalmist and we can do so confidently, the Lord is my helper. And having his help, no other help is needed. I will not be afraid. For having been freed from the greatest of all fears, there is no room for lesser fears. What can man do to me? He may deprive me of my belongings and even kill my body, but he cannot so much as touch the eternal life and wealth that are mine in Christ Jesus my Lord. Indeed, all things are mine, and I am Christ's and Christ is God's. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.